Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Revelations 4 Horsemen. You know, it's interesting that the average person today is bewildered by the confusing array of churches. You can even ask a person if they're trying to look for a church, they're not sure which church to go to or which denomination to join. And the fact that there are so many denominations does not help or make it easier for that search. I believe that in the Protestant uh, religion alone, there's about, I think, what is it, 9,000 different denominations now. Um, it used to be a lot less than that, but now there's 9,000 denominations um, to date. And so the whole question is, have, we wonder, how can I find truth? And that's the true essence of why we're looking for a church or a place to belong, isn't it? We want to go to a place where there's truth. Sure, there's good uh, church structures that have really nice uh, music programs or other uh, churches that have uh, great outreach centers or um, schools. These can all be determinants for families to determine what church would be best for them. But I think the key thing that we must ask ourselves when we try to find a church that God wants, to, wants us to be a part of is that does that church teach the truth? And so we know that when we go to the Bible to find out what truth is and to find a church teaching in harmony with the Bible is the goal, or it should be. I want to remind you tonight of our uh, theme that we go over each and every night. And this is a theme that we want to live by. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it's not in the Bible or disagrees in the, with the Bible, it's not for me. And so, let's start off with this question tonight. Why are there so many different denominations? And the, the Bible and Bible prophecy clearly reveals why there are so many denominations. Now, God has particularly revealed the answer to this question in the book of Revelation. And so when you turn to the book of Revelation, our focus today will be on chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, there's a marvelous vision of four horsemen that gallop across the sky. And when we see what these four horsemen are about, these four horsemen, simply put, is the future of Christianity revealed. It's what? The future of Christianity revealed. So we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 6. We see in this vision of the four horsemen, God has revealed the history of Christianity more clearly than any other place in the Bible. And he's revealed the history of Christianity from the first century in the days of Christ down to the 21st century where we're at right now. He has revealed how Christianity would begin as one movement and one body, but
but somehow along the way it would break up into varying denominations. So the question is, why did that happen when God intended for there to be only one church and one body? And in the book of Revelation, Jesus explains why those denominations would emerge. And this is one of the most fascinating and one of the most exciting prophecies in the entire Bible. And is perhaps one of the most important prophecies as well as we're delving into this idea of why are there so many denominations in the world today? So we're going to take a look in Revelation chapter 6. We see that Revelation's four horsemen represent... Four successive ages in the history of the church. Four horsemen, four successive ages in the history of the church. And we see that the author of prophecy, the author of the book of Revelation, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is this crucial character in the book of Revelation because we see in Revelation chapter 6 there are seven seals on a scroll in this book that no man can open. No man can open this, this uh, scroll that has seven seals except Jesus himself. And so we see, question number two, I already spoiled the answer, the question by giving you the answer, but who only is able to open the seven seals? Well, I said it, but let's get the proof from the Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 1. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, who only is able to open the seven seals? We see Revelation's four horsemen. Like I said before, represents four successive ages in the history of the church. And we see in Revelation chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Stop right there. We see that Revelation tells us that the Lamb is the one who does what? Who opens the seals of the scroll. Right, so he opens them one, one by one. And every time he opens a seal, a clear revelation is brought forth to John as he witnesses this taking place. And so it says that the Lamb opened the seals. Who is the Lamb? That's right. Without a doubt, it's Jesus, the Lamb of Revelation. We see that Jesus is this very Lamb that is alone worthy to open the seals of this book. And so we see that it says that he opened one of the seals. And then it says, in, further on in verse 1, And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like, a, like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. There are four horses that gallop across the sky, and one right after the other. And when Jesus opens the seals, he is showing the church's history in these four phases. The first period is represented by a white horse. So question number three, what does this white horse represent? And we see that white in the Bible is a symbol of 
purity. And we see that um, very clearly this white horse uh, represents a powerful and pure faith. We see that this horse represents the church in the era from the time of AD 31 to AD 100. We see that this church was none other than the apostolic church, the first century church that Jesus, Jesus himself, through the apostles, uh, uh, formed and, and began this church. And we see that this church exists from AD 31 to AD 100. And we see that the one that is conquering, that is on this white horse, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. It's because this church was a faithful church. It was a church that was living by the truth. The truth was so powerful that it was conquering the then known world with the gospel. And because of this, the church was growing and it was building momentum due to the fact that it was conquering because it was living by the true, pure faith, which was the power of this church. And so we see when the first seal was opened, that uh, revelation it talks about how this white horse existed uh, and came in about to be in AD 31 to 100 AD. And so, let me hold on one second here. There we go. So after AD 31, after the death of Christ, from AD 100, the disciples preached the truth of God's word so powerfully that one Roman writer wrote, You Christians are everywhere. You are in our armies, in our navies, you are in the marketplace and the shops, you are in our senate and universities, you are everywhere. And so we see that during this era of time, during this white horse, nothing could stop the progress of Christianity in the first century. It was an unstoppable force to be reckoned with. And the gospel was exploding and the church was growing. And the book of Acts says that the Lord added daily to the number of them that were to be saved in that church. This church was a powerhouse of truth. And we see, friends, even now today, when men and women do not compromise truth in their own life, the church will have that same power. And so we see that, that, that being very much the case uh, then, and it's still the, very much the case today as well. And we see, then Revelation talks about a red horse. And this red horse is, comes right after this um, white horse. And so the question is, what does the red horse represent? And so let's take a look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. And we're going to have table number... Four. <laughs> they scramble the table numbers on us again. So table number four. We'll just go from here and to, to this way like we normally do. So we'll just have uh, someone read verse four for us, please. Okay, so we see that this horse uh, represents uh, 
a time where the church would go through intense persecution because many people would pay for their faith in their own blood. And we see that Satan saw that he could not stop the church. It was a force to be reckoned with. It was triumphing, triumphing everywhere. And he had to do something. And he began a fierce era of bloody persecution. He influenced political leaders to viciously persecute the Christians. And this red horse represents a bloody faith. Christians, during this time, were thrown to the lions. They were lit up as human torches. All these terrible things were taking place as a result of them simply being followers of Christ. And we see that during this time was known as a blood-stained faith for the church, which took place from A.D. 100 to A.D. 313, as many Christians paid for their own lives for their faith in Jesus. And we see that very clearly in the second seal that Jesus opens. It shows a church that is going through a tremendous turmoil of persecution. We see so far the first seal represents the white horse, which represents the apostolic church in its power and purity. The red horse represents a church that has a blood-stained faith that they have to pay their lives with their blood as a result of their faith. And so we're, we see the white horse represents a church triumphant. A red horse symbolizes a church persecuted. But the church, nevertheless, as it was going through this intense time of persecution, you'd think that Satan would have wiped them all out. But the interesting thing was that the more that Satan persecuted the church, an interesting thing was happening. The more that he was mowing these Christians down, one church writer wrote, the blood of the martyrs, martyrs was the seed of the gospel. The more that you persecuted them, the more they grew. The more you killed them, the more joined this movement of the Christian church. So Satan realized that the more he mowed them down, eventually Satan realized that the more he tried to take out as many Christians as he could, but by doing so he was actually uh, causing the, the, the church to grow exponentially, he decided to change his strategy from persecution to something else. And that brings us to the third horse, the black horse. A third horse galloping across the sky is a black horse, which was from the period of AD 313 to AD 538. And so question number five tonight says, what does the black horse represent? And we go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. And we're going to have this table here, uh, table 2. Read this for us. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. What does the black horse represent? When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, the black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Okay. And I heard. Keep going. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, 
and do not harm the oil and the wine. Okay, so we see that a black horse comes onto the scene. And we see that this black horse shows how in the red horse, he was killing Christians, but the more he killed Christians, the Christian movement grew, leaps and bounds. The, the blood of martyrs were the seed for the early church, and they grew the more that they were being, uh, being killed off. But we see that Satan in this era, in the era of the black horse, he changes his strategy. And what Satan does is, as that saying goes, if you cannot beat them, join them. That's right. And so we see that Satan's strategy, he changed his strategy. He decided to, in, he decided to introduce compromise into the church. He, he tried to bring in, a lot, in pagan practices that the church would adopt. And so it would still have the guise, and from the exterior it looked like a church, but at the same time it was still underneath paganism um, that was creeping into this church. And so we see that Satan's strategy was very successful because we see from AD 313 to AD 538, it was a compromised uh, church that compromised its faith. And we see that it had scales on its hand. It's talking about how this church will also be judged for the fact of this very thing. And so we see that in this first seal, the white horse represents the church in the era of a pure faith. We see the second seal represents the red horse, which is the church in the era of intense persecution, a bloodstained faith. The third seal represents the black horse era where the church goes through compromise, where they do not uphold the truth completely, but they allow paganism to be baptized and to be part and integrated into Christianity. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. And we're going to have table number 6 read this for us, please. This table right here. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. Okay, so we see that Paul was speaking to the leaders of the early Christian church. He was telling them that there would eventually become sa savage wolves that would come among the flock that would cause uh, an attack upon God's uh, Christians in that era of time. So Paul was concerned about these compromises that were creeping into the church. The teachings of men would be substituted for the teachings of God. And so this is exactly what happened during this time. And Daniel chapter 8 verse 12 
tells us furthermore what would take place during this era of time. So if we can have someone read Daniel 8 verse 12, page 866, and uh, we'll have the table behind table 6, uh, Mary and Josephine's table, someone can read Daniel 8 verse 12, page 866. If someone can read that for us, please. Page 866, Daniel 8 verse 12. Okay, so we see that here it talks about this power during this time. Under the guise of Christianity, this power would seek to cast truth to the ground, and he did all this and prospered, the Bible says. Where would the truth be cast down? According to this text, to the ground. So in the black horse period, during the 4th and 5th centuries, truth would be cast to the ground. We see that the, the church history reveals that this prophecy is true. And we see uh, in the development of Christian doctrine, page 372, the very famed Christian historian said this. We are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward adornments to which they had been accustomed in their own. Now, what did Constantine, the pagan empire, want to do? He wanted to recommend Christianity to the heathens because he needed their support to strengthen his empire against the invading barbarian tribes. And so how could he do that? So he transferred it into the outward adornments to which they had been accustomed in their own pagan religion. The Bible gave way to superstitious traditions and priests took up the authority of Jesus. And this is where things started to go south very quickly. We see that salvation through Christ was replaced by the requirements of the church. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, we know very clearly that it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. During this period of compromise, simple faith was replaced for certain pagan practices like lighting candles, bowing down before images, worshiping the saints, and the church presumed to change God's laws, including the acceptance of idol worship, and the neglect of the Sabbath. And we see that during this age of compromise, the pagan day of the sun replaced the Bible Sabbath. Many Christian leaders promoted Sunday to make Christianity more acceptable to pagans that were worshiping the first day of the week, Sunday, or the day of the sun. And Christian history reveals this, and you can go to any library and look up these facts. This is not hidden to, to, to the majority of people today. We see also in the history of the Eastern Church, page 184, another uh, secular source, um, it says, The retention of the old pagan name of Dies Solis for Sunday is in a great measure 
owing to the union of pagan and Christian sentiment, with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. So we see that Satan's master strategy was to influence powerful church leaders to unite with powerful state leaders in the black horse period, and they compromised. The pagan emperor Constantine united with the Roman church in an attempt to unite his empire. Sunday was a vehicle for this unity. And in a doctrinal catechism, page 174 of the third American edition, Reverend Stephen Keenan, the Catholic author of the catechism, which is written in a question-answer format, says this. It says, Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precepts? And the answer they provide, had she not such power, she could not have done in all in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. And so very clearly in their catechism, they make it very plainly clear that they instituted this change, yes, but not on the basis of scriptural authority. They made this change based on what they did on their own, thinking, assuming that authority to themselves to make that change. So it was a period of compromise. And so we see that this was characterized in the third seal where the black horse emerges, a church of compromise. It was baptized paganism that took place during this era of time. And we see that the next horse that we see, the fourth and final horse, is the pale horse. And we're going to see what does the pale horse represent. And we're going to go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, page 1178. And we're going to have someone read that for us, please. And uh, table number seven, I believe, is next. Okay, thank you. So we see here during this period is known as the Dark Ages. From A.D. 538 onward, the church grew large. It built great cathedrals. But there was a persecution of the true Bible-believing Christians. Church and state united during this period of time. The church was spiritually dead. And here's an amazing statement in church history. Uh, Chapter 2, section 7 says, Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed baptized paganism. And so this is a time where the Christianity became 
a very, uh, very, very dark time, as it's entering into the time known as the Dark Ages. We see that the term baptized paganism is what characterized this era of time that this church was going through. You substitute the pagan sun god's day for Sabbath, that's baptized paganism. You take the name of pagan gods and Christianize them as the saints and the Virgin Mary, that's baptized paganism. You substitute the commandments of God for the traditions and superstitions and commandments of men, that's baptized paganism. And we see very clearly as the, in this fourth seal, as Jesus opens it, we see that this pale horse emerges and this pale horse represents a dead faith from 538 to 1798. This is a time prophecy that we've seen many times in the book of Revelation and Daniel. This is a time where this power was actually uh, usurping the power of God in place of God and doing as it will. And, at the, and God's true people were at its mercy of this power. And we see uh, seal number one, two, three, and four uh, all there where the pale horse is the final horse that represents this church that is of a dead faith. And so we see that during the fourth seal, there is a union of church and state that has emerged during the Middle Ages. The decrees of the church took the place of the teachings of the Bible. And we see that something is going wrong with this PowerPoint, I apologize. Um, Faithful Christians were chained during the Dark Ages and they were marched to the stake where they were burned. And we see that further and further as you see this church uh, in the Middle Ages, it's going further and further deeper into steps towards compromise. We see that they've compromised by allowing traditions to actually dictate how they would uh, uh, allow people to to uh, follow the church. Uh, faithful Christians were changed, chained during the Dark Ages and they were marched to the stake where they were burned. We see that uh, penance took place of the grace of Jesus Christ. We also see that indulgences, I'm sorry, this is just, Okay, the indulgences were introduced that you could pay money and buy your way out of purgatory, a supposed place between hell and heaven. This church developed this idea. And images, relics were emphasized and venerated, which is idolatry, and many compromises came in to the church at this time. The church hierarchy substituted the sun's day for Sabbath, usurping their authority over the authority of the scriptures and God himself. And human dogmas replaced a clear teaching of God's word. And for centuries, God's truth was cast down. And so you see that further and further along down the line, you saw the church taking further and further deeper steps towards compromise till it was truly characterized as this pale horse. Question number eight says, what, would God's truth be trodden down forever? And I'd like to have us turn to Jude verse three, page 1173. Jude three, page 1173. If we could have someone read that for us, please. 
in table number seven or eight. Can you read that for us? Jude, verse three. Jude only has one chapter. Okay, so here the Bible writer says that God will raise up men and women to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The light of truth will shine again. And we see that Bible-believing Waldensians, they were Bible-believing Christians who lived in the northern Italy and southern France. The popular church despised these godly believers. They were brutally persecuted. They fled into the mountains of the Alps. And we see that the, one of these, we see that the Waldensians were living in the mountain villages at the time so that they could practice their faith in peace without the fear of being persecuted. And so we see that as they fled to the Alps, that they were able to study the Bible in peace. And not only did they, were they content in studying the Bible alone in their own uh, uh, home in the Alps, they were not living like hermits. They were not trying to say, okay, now that nobody can bother us, we can just be here and everything is going to be fine. They also had a burden also to share what they knew, and they also risked their lives by memorizing scripture and taking pages of scripture in them and they would go down to the places in the universities and in the business places and where the popular cities uh, where all the people were and would attempt to reach them with the gospel at the risk of their own lives. And we see that this was characteristic of the Waldensians during this time. The Waldensians were a secret Bible school where young people studied the word and they made copies of it and sent it out and they were sent out to share scripture to receptive people. And we see that the faith of Jesus, the Waldensians were bringing the light of God's word in the 12th century during that time. And then we also see there are others who came. There was a man by the name of John Huss in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and he was a Catholic priest. And he began to study the Bible. And as he studied it, he declared, Obedience to God is my motto, not obedience to man. And we see that there were many people who were actually killed for, as a result of their faith in the Bible and the Bible only. And Huss was one of these people who was courageously laying down his life, and he did pay as a martyr uh, for his own life. And we see that Huss was uh, part of those who brought the truth of the faith in Jesus and allowing that the Bible and the Bible only as our guide of truth, not, tr not the traditions of the church. And I believe that Huss, with Huss, that obedience to God is the only thing that we should follow during this time. And Huss was definitely one of those uh, reformers during the 13th century. And then we see there's a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther appeared on the scene, and he, real, he was a Catholic monk, and he realized that 
when he got his hands on the Bible, he realized that all the things that he was taught was actually wrong. It was not based on the Bible. And so we see that Martin Luther struggled with the issues of faith, and he was a mighty man of God. And we see that as Martin Luther struggled with issues of faith and visited Rome, we see that he sensed that guilt was crushing his life. In an attempt to find peace, he did many penances, including climbing the famed Pilate's staircase on his knees. He thought that if he could climb the stairs, supposedly Jesus would uh, give him that grace and that forgiveness if he uh, climbed as high as he could up to this tower. But when Luther returned home, he still felt the oppression of guilt. All of his pilgrimages and penances had not taken away his feeling of unworthiness. Until some time later, he opened the word of God and he came upon Romans chapter 1 verse 17, which simply said, the just shall live by faith. And that just blew his mind. That understanding that the just shall live by faith. You don't have to whip yourself. You don't have to try to go to these pilgrimages. You don't have to go on your knees on these uh, stone staircases till your knees were bloody to, to earn favor from God. It says clearly in the word of God that the just shall live by faith. And Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven among men, given among men, which by we must be saved. And we see that in the 14th century, God used Martin Luther to restore a very important component of the Christian foundation, which is the grace of God that brings salvation unto all men, that men are justified not by works, but by faith. And so we see that God has always had a people he had the Waldensians bring the light of truth of the Bible in the 12th century. He had John Huss to bring the concept of obedience to God and God only uh, to the forefront. And Martin Luther, a Catholic monk of all people, who discovered just by reading the word of God that by grace we are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we see that the light of Jesus would penetrate the darkness during this time. And so Jesus was bringing and restoring these truths and during a period of 500 years. It took 500 years for the church to go from the white horse of pure apostolic faith to the pale horse of spiritual darkness. It took time for God's faithful followers to grasp glimpses of truth lost down through the ages. And God would not switch on a light and have truth come down on our minds all at once, but he was revealing it gradually during a progressive uh, span of time. And so we see that God gradually began restoring truth. In the 1300s and the 1400s, the Waldensian people, John Huss, Martin Luther, each bringing more understanding of the Bible to the people of God. Do you know why there are, that there are so many denominations today? Because the Waldensians 
Although they were a Bible-believing group of people, they loved God and they wanted to follow what the Bible said, the Waldensians stopped where they were. They said the Bible and the Bible only is truth, but they didn't keep studying the doctrines of the Bible, and so they remained where they were. The Hussites said obedience to God, but that they didn't keep going from there. And that's why they remain where they're at. The Lutherans said salvation by faith. Martin Luther has, has, has it all, they say, but they did not keep going. And God raised up these good, great, courageous men who had partial light, but not one of them had complete truth. And we see the progression continues as John Calvin was a man in Geneva, Switzerland. God raised this man up, and Calvin emphasized the importance of Christian discipline and growth in grace. And we see that John, uh, John Calvin was also added on top of his contribution to restoring the faith of Jesus. He brought the fact that we must grow as Christians. He emphasized the importance of Christian discipline and growth in grace. And John Calvin put that to the forefront. And that was a wonderful thing that he did because we did need to know that. And then we see that John Robinson understood this principle. He was the pastor of the Puritan pilgrims who sailed the Mayflower to the New World, unable to make the journey himself. He was actually seeing off these pilgrims as they were aboard this ship and they were on the ship called the Mayflower to the New World. And he was bidding them farewell and this was his last words to these faithful pilgrims who were seeking religious freedom in the New World. Listen to what he says, and I think what his words say ring true today, especially for our time. He says, if God should reveal anything to you by any other instrument of his, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of my ministry. For I am confident the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. Did you hear what he said? He says, do not remain and be content in where you're at. I believe that there's more truth that God wants to reveal to you and be open to that truth, embrace that truth, and follow that truth. Praise God for John Robinson. He's a faithful man of God who's saying the right thing. You don't get content with where you're at and say, we've arrived. John Robinson saying, follow the truth. I'm confident that the Lord has more truth and more light yet to break forth from His Word. And so we see that God was leading the church over a period of centuries until further truth would be restored by a final body of believers at the end of time. This movement would be built upon the shoulders of these reformers. And we see it took the Baptists or the anti-Baptist movement also to bring forth the truth of baptism by immersion. They said they restored that truth that the church actually uh, substituted with sprinkling and infant baptism. And they said, no, 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 no. 
The Bible tells us that baptism is by immersion, and baptism should be a conscious decision on the individual. A child cannot make that decision, and therefore they restored that truth among many others. And we see that Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And so we see that, praise God for the Baptists, that they also contributed to restoring the faith of Jesus, a piece of that. But we see that God continues. He doesn't stop right there. We see that God, he raises up a man named John Wesley. And you know who John Wesley is known for? The Methodist Church. That's right. John Wesley saw the standards of the church were decaying. He saw the amusements, the pleasures, and the practices of the world were entering into the church. And he realized that this cannot be. The church cannot compromise with the worldly practices. The church, a Christian should not embrace worldly practices in their lives. There should be a clear distinction between a true Christian and one of the world. And so he was emphasizing in the 18th century the, the need for holiness. Holiness was the emphasis, how God's people were truly to uh, represent him in a world. We do not convert the world by being like the world, or it's, it's going to turn out to be the other way around. The world will end up converting Christians rather than Christians converting the world. And we see that God raised up John Wesley so that when men and women study the Bible, they were, to, they were to know that they were to live holy and righteous lives. I believe in holiness. Do you? I believe that we as Christians should live holy. Shouldn't we? Doesn't the Bible say, be holy as I am holy? God, God calls us to that, doesn't he? And so we see that I believe that when you are Christian... You should look like a Christian, you should eat like a Christian, and you should go to places that Christians go. Claiming to be Christian but drinking alcohol, indulging in worldly entertainment and dress is not Christianity. It is self-deception. There is another long-lost truth that needed to be restored. And we see that that truth was to be restored in the next man John, William Miller. God raised up a powerful preacher named William Miller to proclaim the truth of the second coming of our Lord. And we see that at this time, the church has largely neglected the truth of our Lord's return. God raised up a whole new movement called the Adventists. And the Adventists were called Adventists because they believed in the second advent of Jesus' coming. They believed that the word Advent showed that Jesus' coming was near. And friends, do you believe that Jesus' coming is soon? Amen. Do you believe that he's coming, his coming is near? Amen. Well, I believe that too. So I am an Adventist. And if you believe that, you are an Adventist too. And we see that William Miller, he contributed that 
utmost important truth that the second coming, the second coming of Jesus was imminent. It was near. We needed to be uh, watchful for it. For those of you that weren't here for our baptismal class, we, we covered this, how, uh, how can we, we be ready for the second coming of Christ? Matthew 24, 44, I believe, says that we must be ready because the Son of Man cometh at a time that you do not expect. The time that you least expect Jesus to come, guess what? He's going to come during that time. And so when we don't know when He's going to come, we must always be in a state of readiness and expectancy for His return. That means the way that we live our lives should also dictate to that fact. And so that was a truth that William Miller brought up in the 19th century. And we see that there was one important biblical truth that was not yet restored. The truth that faith leads to obedience to the commandments of God and the special truth regarding the Sabbath as a symbol of Christ's creative authority. And we see that Christ would raise up a last day movement that would finally restore the truth about God's Ten Commandments in a time of commandment breaking. In a time where the commandments are actually seen as not as of importance. A last day movement that would seriously take God's instructions through Jesus when Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And we see that Christ himself is looking for a last day movement that is outlined in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14 verse 7, page 1183. Jesus will have a last day movement outlined in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14 verse 7, page 1183. And if we can have table 9, which would be Sal, to read that for us, please. Thank you. So God would call all humanity back to worship the Creator. God would call all humanity back to the truths of the Bible. God would call all humanity back to accept the Sabbath as a symbol of His creative power. In an age of evolution, God would restore the truth about creation and the Bible Sabbath. God will have a group of people that restored the truths lost in the Dark Ages. And the Bible's last book, Revelation, identifies this group of people. Where are God's people today in these last days? Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, page 1184. Revelation 14, verse 12, page 1184. And we'll have the next table behind Sal to read that for us, please. Revelation 14, 12, page 1184. The rest of us will follow along with that. Okay, so here is the patience of the saints. God will have a group of people that have total faith in Him and accept the whole Bible as His word of truth in these last days. 
He would have a group of people that will keep his commandments because they love him and they are faithfully worshiping the Creator each Bible Sabbath. These Christians would grow in the faith that Jesus had when he walked on the earth. God would have a called out people, men and women from every nation, from every race, men from every language group, a called out people that will follow the Bible and the Bible only. And we see that very clearly that when we look back at how God has led these courageous men to bring forth these truths, I, you could say, am a Waldensian because I believe in the Bible and the Bible only. You can also say that I am a follower of John Huss because I believe in obedience to God as our only motto. You can say that in a sense I am a Lutheran because I believe in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense I am a Presbyterian because I believe in the organization of the church as taught by the Bible. You can also say that I am a Baptist because I believe in baptism by immersion. God has called us during this time to also follow His Word. And we see that in a sense I am a Methodist because I believe that God has called us to holiness. And you can also say that I am an Adventist because I believe in the second coming of Christ. We see I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe in the Bible Sabbath of the seventh day. And I believe God has a movement in the book of Revelation to which he is calling men and women. Tonight God is calling his people in the last days. He's doing something unusual. He's gathering his people in his last day movement all around the world. John, cha John chapter 10, Jesus says, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold, but they will be all brought into one fold under one shepherd. And that is what Jesus is seeking to do. And when we come back to the word of God, as we allow the word of God and its entire truth that it reveals, and we embrace it and integrate it into our Christian experience and Christian life, that will take place. The, the great gathering will take place based on the Word of God and the truth of God's Word that is being embraced wholeheartedly by everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. When we claim to follow the Word of God in its entirety, we will become one church in one fold under one shepherd. Hundreds and thousands of people sense that this is God's time to restore all the truths that have been lost uh, lost sight of down through the ages. And there are people today, people like you tonight, that are accepting God's truth. They're walking in the waters to be baptized. They're following Jesus Christ. They do not want a denomination that's based on men and that only comes partway out of error and partway out of traditions of the past. There are those who want to say, I want to go all the way with Jesus. I want to walk all the way into His truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that God has brought you here tonight for a very special purpose. You are not here by accident. You did not walk into this gymnasium by happenstance. I believe that God had truth walk into your life, and tonight God is saying, my child, 
The moment of destiny. This is your time of opportunity. Will you follow that truth? And he is wanting you to respond tonight. Would you say to Jesus tonight, Lord, thank you. I want to follow that truth. Let me share with you my personal testimony. I grew up born and raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And although I was born and raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church, I did not really know what I believed. I just went to church because that's the church my parents taught, brought me to. And I played church. I went to church, but as time goes on, as young people do, they start to try to find their own way. They try to evaluate whether or not is what I believe truly what I believe. And I didn't find my fulfillment in the church. So I went out into the world. And I went out and found all the pleasures of the world, the worldly entertainment and the worldly amusements to gratify what I thought I was looking for, which was meaning in my life, purpose for my life. And I could, I, I'm not going to go into my whole life story here. But I was actually very much into the dance world and I was into the, the karaoke world. I was into the, going to the bars and, and all these places where they had all these like entertainment. And I thought that that's who I was. I thought that that's what I had to live for just to make a name for myself and to just enjoy life as I sought fit. But every time that I came back home, I always had this emptiness. I always had in the back of my mind that, that there was something missing in my life. And that's when I realized that I was trying to find some meaning in my life, but I couldn't find exactly what it was. I couldn't pinpoint it, you see. And it wasn't until I ran into a group of young people that were my age who were really into studying the Bible. And, and they were... And I thought I knew the Bible growing up in the church. But they really knew their Bible and they were also wanting to live by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. And I was like, who are these young people? Who, who's putting them up to this? But I found out that no one's putting them up to it. They were having a genuine experience, a life-changing experience with Christ. The truths of God's word was so powerful and living when they spoke about it. I realized for the first time in my life, although I was raised in the church... I did not have what those young people had. And I realized that there's something wrong. How is it that I grew up in the church all my life and I did not get what they got? And that's when I started to search for myself along with them. And as I searched the Word of God, as I revisited the truths, all of a sudden it was just like new light. It was always there all along, but I didn't see the value of it. It didn't hit me. And in a sense, I was reliving my Christian experience all over again during that time. And I was, at this time, a very well-known dance instructor. I was teaching at several dance studios at the time. And I was making a name for myself. People would always call me for... You know, if they need to choreograph a, a, a dance for their wedding, for their daughter or whoever, or at, or at business parties, I was actually rubbing elbows with people that were high in society. And that was really hard to give up. And I didn't want to give it up because that's how I th saw my value 
in who I was. My identity was integrated into that lifestyle. And the Lord said, Brian, I'm leading you into truth. You're seeing how this, this truth is valuable. Now I want you to let go of that lifestyle and follow me all the way. And I said, Lord, I cannot. I said, Lord, I cannot do this. I was honest. I, I really couldn't. I was in it for over 10 years, really into it. I was, I was living, breathing. Dance was my life. And the Lord told me, Brian, you need to give this up. Do you want to follow me all the way? I said, yes, Lord. Then you need to give it up. And I said, Lord, I cannot give this up. I, I, I just can't give it up. I was, I was honest to God. I could not give it up. But I prayed a prayer that I still remember to this day. I said, Lord, if it's your will, which I know it was God's will, but I said, if, it's, if you want me to leave this world behind, this dance life behind, I want you to take away this desire from me. And I went further because I knew myself. I knew that if he took that desire away from me, it would not be enough because I would probably go back to it again eventually. So I said, Lord, take this desire away from me and replace it with something better. And I prayed that prayer. It was a scary prayer because I was pretty much giving God full permission to do what he needed to do to take this desire away from me. And you know what the interesting thing was? It didn't happen overnight. But when I would go to the dance studios, when I go to these dance parties afterwards, I started to see things differently. God opened my eyes to the things that I saw and I realized this is not my purpose in life. This is not what I'm made for. This is not what God has purpose for my life to be. And by God's grace, He did answer my prayer. He changed my desire, replaced it with something better. And I can say glory to God because now I know my purpose. My purpose and your purpose is one and the same. If we're truly followers of Christ, we will lay everything on the altar for Him. And we will go all the way and follow in His truth wherever His truth will lead. And when you follow that truth, God is going to use you to bring others to the truth. There's no greater joy, and I'm so undeserving to be standing before you tonight. But the Lord in His gracious mercy and forbearance was patient with me, and He has given me that privilege to serve Him, to prepare people for the soon return of Jesus Christ. There is no greater purpose than that. There's no greater purpose than lifting up the truth of God's word to a lost and dying world
who do not know who Jesus means to them. And when I look back on my journey, I don't have any regrets. I have to admit, there were scary moments where I had to give things up I didn't think I could give up. Give up things I thought I knew was my life, but I had to let it go. But looking back on it now, all I can say is praise God. God is good. You can trust God. When God tells you to go somewhere and to follow the truth, you can trust Him. When it's the truth of God's word that you are to embrace and to follow, you can trust Him. Don't be afraid of what's going to happen. But just trust Him. And tonight I'd like to ask, how many of you here tonight, you've seen how God has always had a people in every era of time. You've seen how many denominations splintered as a result of people refusing to go further in the truth of light that God has revealed. But tonight you want to say, Lord, I want to go back to the first church, the apostolic church, where it was one church that stood by the principles of your word and the commandments of God, and I will follow it all the way, no matter what the cost. Is there anyone here tonight that would like to make that decision and say, Lord, yes, I will follow your truth. I will go all the way. I will go wherever you lead. And friends, Revelation chapter 14 tells us that the last day group of people, the 144,000, those who will stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion are those who follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. And I'm calling for people tonight who are willing to follow Jesus in the truth of His Word all the way. And if that is you, and you sense the Holy Spirit calling you to do that tonight, I want to ask you to stand. If that is truly where you sense the Lord asking you to do, to follow in His truth all the way, You know what it means, don't you? When you're standing right now, it means there's no turning back. You're moving forward. Whithersoever the Lord leads, whatever the Lord reveals, the light of truth to you, you're saying, Lord, I want to move forward. And praise God for that. Praise God that you are willing to trust Him to lead you all the way. All the way my Savior leads me. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us to know that we cannot bear all the light of truth all at once. It would overwhelm us. 
Lord, you know exactly how much truth you lead us step by step. Psalms 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Lord, we are so thankful for that light, the light of your word that guides us in the way that we should go. Lord, I pray for those who are standing. Lord, I know that you've brought them here. I know that more truth has been revealed to them during these seminars. And Lord, I pray that you'll please continue to faithfully, as you've done in the past, guide them further along. Confirm with them in every step that they make, in every decision that they make, when they know it's truth, that as they're stepping forward in that truth, that you are confirming it in their hearts. Yes, my child, that's the way you should walk. That's the way you should go. And Lord, I pray that that voice will be very clear to them. I pray that you'll please bless them as they seek to follow your, your word all the way, every step of the way, till you come. Lord, we are so grateful that truth is progressive, that truth is yet to be revealed more and more for all of us in our walk with you. But Lord, we also want to pray that as we walk with you, that our eyes will be fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that we may not falter nor fall back, but faithfully, by your grace, move forward. We thank you for hearing this prayer and for what you will do for each and every individual standing here tonight. Bless them, empower them with your spirit, and may they courageously, like the reformers before them, move forward in the light of truth in these last days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.